0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. One of the best-known and most influential theologians of the last hundred years, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want you to read him, he got off on some things, but he was asked, what is the most profound truth in Christendom? And his response was, and I think I told you this before when I was preaching, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. If you're using a pew Bible, we're at page 994. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along Just as he was in the boat, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Quiet! be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Most of us, probably all of us, have been in situations where we wondered if God loved us, if he were really caring for us. We had believed the gospel, the gospel taught in Scripture. We agreed with the biblical statement that all have sinned and come short of God's standard, that all had offended God by disobeying him. We came to believe that we could not undo what we had done to displease God through our own efforts. The sins have been committed. To try to undo them was like trying to put toothpaste back into the tube once it comes out. We understood that people who have offended God by their disobedience cannot fellowship with an absolutely pure, absolutely holy, sinless God a God who calls them to be like he is. Be holy as I am holy. Their offenses must be eradicated for there to be intimacy and fellowship with this God. We came to believe that Jesus, the sinless God-man, suffered the eternal punishment warranted, that we warranted for our sins as he was nailed to the cross. We believed that if we trusted in his sacrifice for our forgiveness and made a commitment to follow and obey him, that we would be forgiven and we would be adopted into God's family, that we would become God's sons and God's daughters. With sorrow for our sins in prayer, we confessed our sinfulness. We asked God to forgive us based on the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross And we told God that we wanted to follow Jesus. We wanted, as we were given grace, to live like he lived in obedience to God's law. Our life was changed. We experienced joy in knowing that things were right between us and our God. Our sin problem had been handled. We had new desires. We desired to know this Jesus better. We had a hunger for the word of God. Then at some point, after receiving new life in Jesus, maybe it was a few days or a few weeks, it could have been months, maybe a year or so, our world was shaken to its foundations. We came upon a life tsunami. The phone rang, and a doctor or some person from a doctor's office told us that the test results were not good and that we were probably going to need surgery. We wanted a baby more than anything else, and we conceived, and we went through many checkups, and they were all good, and then at one office visit, there was no heartbeat. A supervisor called us into his or her office and said, maybe you've heard word that there's a downsizing going on, and I'm sorry to have to tell you that your job is being eliminated. There will be no place here for you. Or maybe a child of ours made a bad choice, and we knew that that choice would bring him or her a mountain of pain and consequences that would last for a long, long time. Or maybe a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or maybe even a spouse said to us one day, you know, this relationship isn't working very well for me. I'm not getting out of this what I think I should get and I want out of the relationship. I want out of the marriage. At that time, you were not living in any known sin. It wasn't that God was bringing correction to you to get you back on the path of holiness because you hadn't listened to the still, small voice of the Spirit of God in it, within as he took the Scriptures and pointed out your sin to you. You weren't ignoring sin in your life, and so the discipline was getting stricter all the time, as Hebrews 12, 6 through 11 says can happen. You were following Jesus, and you were in the middle of a severe storm, and you wondered if God cared for you, you wondered whether he still loved you, you wondered if he were protecting you and sustaining you. In our text in Mark 4, 35 through 41, Jesus' apostles are wondering those very same things now, I'd like us to look at three things today I'd like us to see that Jesus is truly human that we have disciples who are truly terrified in the presence of what's going on and that Jesus is also truly God now Mark tells us in four thirty-five that the storm in which the Apostles and Jesus found themselves took place on a day after Jesus had been teaching both large crowds and teaching his disciples privately. In 435, that day connects our text and the event that's described in it to the teaching events that take place earlier in chapter four. In Mark 4.1, we are told that the crowd listening to Jesus was very large so large that Jesus had to go out in a boat a little bit from the shore of Galilee in order to be able to teach. So the crowd was so great that Jesus, if he had been in the midst of the crowd, would not have been able to be seen or heard by more than just a few people around him. It would have been difficult for Jesus to give continuity in teaching to express himself fully in a situation where he was in the midst of that crowd. You've seen how crowds behave when some prominent person is around. We can imagine the crowd, if Jesus hadn't been teaching from that boat, pushing him around and shoving, trying to get close to him, to hear this one who heals and casts out demons and teaches like no other man has ever taught. I want to tell you that preaching and teaching Are exhausting the reason most preachers take Mondays off is because by Monday they are emotionally spiritually mentally drained Paul affirms the rigors of preaching and teaching in 1st Timothy chapter 5 verse 7 when he writes the elders who direct the affairs of the church well Are worthy of double honor now he's talking about financial compensation that they should be well compensated for their labors he goes on to say especially those whose work is preaching and teaching the word that's used for work there is a word that means hard difficult strenuous physical labor now I've done this for almost 50 years next year will be 50 years And I can tell you that, at least for me, preparation for teaching takes incredible effort. As Scripture is compared with Scripture, so that the teacher in speaking is speaking the very Word of God and that he's doing it accurately. There is also the stress that comes with probing the hearer's souls and confronting them about their sin. Anybody who's preached in evangelical church for a while and preached the Word of God is aware that some people in the congregation hearing him will resist this process, and some of those resisting may be very well vocal in their displeasure of what he has to say as he preaches about sin and righteousness. The true mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ never wavers in his preaching because of that, But it creates within him an internal dissonance because most preachers like to serve sheep and and please sheep so it creates an internal dissonance in him that becomes wearing over time mark tells us in 322 that in jesus audience there were people who were listening to what he had to say so that they could attribute his work and his teaching to the work of Satan. So Jesus knew that was going on. Additionally, no matter how much the pastor loves people and the shepherd's role, he will find in time that the cumulative impact of dealing with people's sin and illness and discipline cases and death and emotional pain and poverty and unbelief and the whole range of human problems And needs that are shared with him and he wants them shared is Emotionally and spiritually draining About six months after I stepped back at the end of June 2012 from being senior pastor I began to feel light. I thought I'd float away and I realized that it was because for decades from the time I was 27 years old whenever the phone rang it could be somebody that had died a tragic death or something horrible had taken place. The responsibility of the care of souls is wearing. Now if all of this were not enough, every faithful minister engages in spiritual warfare whenever he's preparing to preach. So it happens in the study, not just in the pulpit. When he's preparing to preach the word of God that rescues men and women, boys and girls from the kingdom of Satan, wouldn't you expect spiritual Opposition Jesus tells us that Satan is active right now while the Word of God is being proclaimed in this place, or at least we should feel that he very well could be. Satan works to neutralize the impact of the gospel in the parable of the sower and the seed in mark four four and then in four fifteen the farmer scatters the seed. And Jesus says that when the seed is scattered, the birds of the air come and try to snatch it all up. And Jesus says that the birds represent Satan, who is present whenever the gospel is proclaimed, to quickly take away the seed of the gospel. Now, Jesus has healed. He has exercised demons. He has taught in the face of human and satanic opposition. And he is physically, spiritually, and emotionally drained. The scripture says, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. In Matthew 8, 18, we see what drove that request. The crowd would not leave Jesus alone so that he could rest and recharge physically and spiritually. We read there, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. When he saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side. Mark 4.35, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along in the boat. Now Mark 4.38 records that Jesus went to sleep in the stern of the boat. Of those in the boat, he alone sleeps. He is the one who's exhausted. Mark, Matthew, and Luke all include this event in the life of Jesus, and I believe they do it, to drive home the point that Jesus is fully human, even as he is fully God. Think about it. We have no record in Scripture of angels who get exhausted from doing their ministry. I don't know of anything in Scripture that says that. God never tires from his work. We know in Psalm 121, 2 through 4, the Lord and maker of heaven and earth will neither slumber nor sleep. But Jesus is absolutely drained of energy. He cannot go on here without physical and psychic restoration that sleep brings to all, to you and to me when we're exhausted. And so as this boat knifes its way, quietly through the waters of the Sea of Galilee or the lake, gentle wind blowing in its sails, the second person of the Trinity, who in the womb of the Virgin Mary took to himself a real human body and a real human soul like yours, except no sin, sleeps the sleep that you've slept when you've been totally exhausted. Do you remember those times? Totally exhausted. Maybe you'd driven all night and went to sleep. He sleeps that kind of sound sleep. Now Jesus' full humanity is absolutely essential to your forgiveness by a holy and just God. Absolutely necessary. When Jesus suffers the hell that you deserve to suffer for your sin, he does it in the only way that it is acceptable to god the father there's no other way jesus dies and suffers the wrath of god in your place as a sinless human as a substitute for you the sinful human he suffers and dies as a perfect substitute the son of god became a man to do this he was on mission this was his mission second corinthians 5 21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus' full humanity is essential also to the comfort of those who believe in him in this life. The one who died in our place was raised from death, and he lives in heaven at God the Father's right hand. And we've already read Hebrews chapter four. Isn't it amazing? I didn't choose any of that. Chose the sermon. It all ties together. That's a God thing. It happens a lot. Hebrews four, fifteen and sixteen, Jesus tells us that this knowledge should be a continual encouragement to us, because we have in heaven one who is fully human and also fully God. In his complete humanity, the God-man experienced not only exhaustion, but hunger and thirst and rejection and humiliation, physical pain, emotional pain, every type of temptation, every category of temptation that each of us faces, temptation to sin, except he was without sin. He has experienced as a human everything you have or will ever experience except sin. He knows your joy, he knows your sorrow, he empathizes with you. He can feel what you feel, and as exalted Lord of heaven and earth, he says to you in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, come to me, come with confidence, come asking for help and strength. I know exactly what you need, I've been there. I am eager to provide you whatever it is you need." Well, Jesus' disciples are truly terrified, Mark 4, 37 through 40. The topography of the Galilean Lake is such that it makes for incredible and rapid changes in the weather, and severe storms regularly come across the lake. The language used by Matthew, Mark, and Luke to describe what happens to Jesus and the, the apostles as they cross this lake, indicates a storm of colossal proportions has swept in quickly on them. The boat is filling with water. The waves are crashing over the sides. Now, even the fishermen in this boat, who have much experience on this lake, were terrified when the disciples say to Jesus in Luke eight twenty four master, master, we are going to drown, that's a professional opinion. That's not from a person like me who doesn't know what goes on on this lake. This is from people who earn their living on the lake. In verse 38 of our text, the disciples wake the sleeping Jesus, and they cry out to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now the question is, do these disciples really believe that they're going to die and Jesus is going to drown with them? Or do they actually believe that he can perform a miracle now and save himself and them? From Jesus' comment in verse 40 about their lack of faith and from their shock in verse 41 when Jesus speaks to the waves and the wind and calms both, it's likely that these men are simply protesting Jesus' apparent lack of concern for their plight. They may be dismayed also that he's not helping them, he's sleeping, while they're bailing like crazy, probably to keep this boat from sinking. Now, Kevin and I both like J.C. Ryle, and we've quoted him from the pulpit many times. He's a old dead anglican guy who writes commentaries and makes tremendous spiritual sense gives insight and jc ryle writes about this he says sight and sense and feelings make men and women very poor theologians now let me say that again so it can sink in sight and sense and feelings make men and women very poor theologians these men see and experience the storm, and they are convinced they are going to die. But they have forgotten their theology, what Jesus has taught them and shown them about himself. They are safe with him. He has told them that they have been chosen to build his eternal kingdom. He hasn't sent them yet to do that. They can't die now because the work that he's assigned them to do has not been accomplished. They haven't even been unleashed to do that. If what he told them is true, they can't die on his leg. Also, Jesus cannot die in this storm, can he? He must carry out the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets, and he must carry out what Moses had to say, and that is that he must live a perfectly sinless life, and then Messiah must die a very bloody, sacrificial death, a violent death, uh, as a sacrifice for sin. Now let's back up for a little bit and pat ourselves on the shoulder. I think it's time that we should all do that for ourselves. Aren't you glad that you are not like these faithful, faithless disciples? Aren't you glad that you don't panic when the storms of life hit you? Aren't you glad that your theology keeps you at peace when the waves come crashing down on you? Aren't you glad that you rest in the insurance that the master of heaven and earth and sky and sea has everything under control and he's controlling it for your ultimate good? Aren't you glad that you stay convinced that nothing can happen to you unless it comes through the hand of a loving Heavenly Father who's allowing it to happen for your ultimate good, aren't you glad that every storm he allows you to experience, you know has a beneficial purpose for you and others whose lives are touched by you? Now, if you do that all the time, would you raise your hand? No, no, <laughs> don't The truth is, most of us, including this pastor, are very much like these men when we see and sense and feel the storm we become very poor theologians our theology our faith is washed overboard by the storm now think about who it is who gets these men involved in this situation they are in the midst of this life-threatening situation why because they've been obedient to their Lord and their master. Jesus is the one who asked them to take him across the lake. But their perfect obedience to Jesus hasn't spared them a terrifying, life-threatening experience, has it? If you think following Jesus will keep you from experiencing trouble in this life, you didn't get it from Jesus. You didn't get that from Scripture, and to my knowledge, you never got it from the pulpit of Faith Presbyterian Church. Jesus is truly human. We have disciples who are truly terrified. Jesus is truly God, chapter 4, verses 39 through 41. God is sovereign over every storm. We know that when we're not in a storm. Psalm 135, 6 through 7, the Lord does what he pleases in the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. He has every storm under control. Psalm 89, 9, you, O Lord, rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Now, Mark and the other gospel writers want us to know from this event that Jesus is truly human that he is exhausted, that he requires sleep, but they also want us to know that his faith in his Father has not failed him. He is experiencing perfect peace in the storm. He has perfect confidence in his Father's protection. He knows nothing can harm him until his work on earth is done, and we can have that kind of peace also. Now, in four thirty-eight through 39, The disciples wake up Jesus and probably in their terror and their panic they shout at him they come down loud on him no doubt in a critical way when they say teacher don't you care if we drowned Jesus got up from his sleep he rebuked the wind that's a very strong word it means like to muzzle a wild animal And he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And Mark records that immediately at Jesus' words, the wind died down and it was completely calm. Jesus is truly man, he has a full human nature like yours. He has a human body, he has a human soul, but his complete human nature formed in the womb of the virgin is forever joined to his divine nature. He is truly man, but he is truly God. John 1.14 tells us the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling among us. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Colossians 1.15 through 17, by him all things were created in him all things hold together. He spoke the words, worlds into existence, and he sustains them every day by his voice. Being truly God, all power in heaven and on earth is his. The wind and the waves obey his voice as the hymn says, peace be still. Christ's divine nature makes his sinless human sacrifice effective not just for one sinning human as substitute, but for all who believe. Christ's divine nature keeps his human nature from being crushed under the weight of eternal damnation from God for the sins of all who will believe in a short period of time as he hangs there on the cross, as he experiences for us being substitute sin bearer and his divine nature makes his sacrifice effective for each of the hundreds of millions of people who have believed and will believe until that time when Jesus comes again. Now the weary God-man slept through this fierce storm of seismic proportions. Awakened, he he calms the wind and the waves. The apostles cry, Teacher, don't you care if we drown?" Jesus cared. Jesus always cares for his own and about his own. This doesn't mean that harm never comes to Jesus' followers. What it means is that in every storm you will ever go through, you have a God in heaven that you can go to who knows thoroughly what you're going through and he can end the storm if it's part of his will, if it's the best for you and your ultimate good, and those whose lives are touched by yours. I'd like us to see as we close that the storms of life are important for our training in faith. As a result of the disciples experiencing this massive storm that could have taken their lives apart from Jesus' intervention, they begin to move to full assurance that their master is God incarnate. The apostles are afraid that they will die in the storm. After Jesus commands that the storm stops, what's their fear now? They're afraid of Jesus. In 441, it says they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him they knew that they were in the presence of awesome, infinite power. And they were not sure what to make of it at this point. They had watched Jesus cast out demons and heal people, but it is likely that they knew of other really godly people who in the power of God had prayed and brought about healing and even cast out demons. But they have never seen a person who can control nature in the way that Jesus controls it here. And they are terrified. They are awed by the presence of omnipotence of almighty power in Jesus. Jesus is far more than they had previously imagined him to be. Jesus' apostles are coming to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of, which means equal to, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see the part that storms play in the lives of Christ's followers? These men will never forget this event. You don't forget near-death experiences like this. In the storm, they got to know Jesus in ways they had not previously known him. Their faith in his absolute power to answer their prayers and to meet their needs is tremendously strengthened by this event. From this time on, Whenever danger raised its head, these men would face it with increased confidence, knowing that Jesus cared about them, that he had the power to respond to their cries for help. Their faith grown in the storm would bring them an inner peace in subsequent storms that came into their lives. Now, it's going to take more lessons if you know these apostles. Many more lessons will be required to develop their faith fully. But by the time Jesus is about to return to heaven after being raised from the dead, Matthew 28, 18 through 19, and says to them, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I am with you always? They're going to go out unafraid and fearlessly take the gospel to a hostile world, and they're gonna change that world by God's grace in a few short years. If you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, Jesus is training you in faith in the way he trained these disciples. The storms that come, even when we just don't understand, are not random. They have purpose. They drive us to Jesus. We get to know him more fully. The God-man works the storms out for our ultimate advantage, Romans 8.28 and following. In them, he grows us in our faith. He makes us more like Jesus, and that's the process that we're going through in this life. That's what Christian life here is all about, becoming more like Jesus. Now, you can have peace in the storms. He is in them with you. You can go to him for help. He knows what you feel because of incarnation. Jesus took your humanity. It is forever a part of who he is. And he invites you to come boldly for strength and comfort and encouragement that you need to endure the storms of life. Now, this section ends with the most important question, I think, that anybody can ever face an answer. In life this section ends with a question that focuses attention on Jesus in a way that calls all who read it to answer the question for themselves and it's the question of the disciples who is this how do you answer that question if you can tell God in faith today I believe Jesus is the sinless God-man who died and rose again as the only possible substitute for my sins. Then you are part of the kingdom of God. Your sins are gone. You have fellowship with God now and forever. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him in that way shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 13. But if you cannot answer that question, who is Jesus, in that way, then you had better study the Gospels and find out who this Jesus is. You know, Jesus said, what will a man give or a woman give, a child give, in exchange for his soul? I mean, when people get close, as I am, to stepping out into eternity, You begin to think a lot about these things, and you're concerned about people that you preach to and people in your family and people around you. If you can't answer that question that way, you are headed for hell. Your soul is gonna suffer for all eternity, all eternity because of the sins that you've committed. Why don't you come now, receive Jesus as Savior as we pray, and have your sin problem handled. And if you can't do that today, You know, you can't work up this faith on your own. It's a gift of God. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Read Mark. See who Jesus is. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. Father, we come to your table now, a table that witnesses to the work that your son Jesus did on Calvary. We realize that he's here with us spiritually, that he comes to feed our souls as we partake in a right manner of bread that represents his death and of blood that represents his life poured out for sin, his sinless blood. We pray, Father, that if there are those here who are not certain that they are Jesus' children, that they would pray right now, Lord, I know that I've sinned. I know that I have not been absolutely obedient to your law. I want Christ. I want to follow him. I don't know where this all leads. But, Father, it's my desire to accept the only sacrifice for sin, the Savior who died, the sinless Savior who died for my sin as my substitute, and who was raised again. Father, help them to do that right now. Help us to revel in what the God-man has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.